This is the Clinical Takeaway podcast from HealthEd, where we interview leading medical experts on important topics that can positively change the way you practice. Here's your host, GP and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. HealthEd's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022. And we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthed.com.au. Our job as GPs is challenging enough and a diagnosis of a rare cancer in a patient can overwhelm both the patients and the GP. It is just great to have help when we need it the most. Rare Cancers Australia is there to help us care for our patients better by providing the information, research, support and referral pathways and to help our patients access new and expensive drugs and treatment. In this podcast, I will be speaking to Dr. Emily Isham. Dr. Isham, tell us about yourself. Hi, David. Thank you for having me on the show. Look, I am a GP. I'm down here in Tasmania, which has been largely fairly unaffected by COVID over the last 18 months compared to other states in Australia, and we're very grateful for that. Um, I also work for Rare Cancers Australia, and I've been working with them since about mid-2019. I produce a lot of the content um, from a medical perspective, and I try to translate a lot of medical jargon for people who um, are coming to us for support and generally try to improve health literacy and health awareness in that work just for the for the thousands of people who are suffering from a rare or less common cancer here in Australia because they fly under the radar so often. Emily, two questions you're ready to ask. Um, what are rare cancers really and what is Rare Cancer Australia? A rare cancer is a cancer, um, it's defined as one which has fewer than six diagnoses per 100,000 people in the population. And a less common cancer is one which has fewer than 12 diagnoses per 100,000 of the population. So if we look at Australia, about 52,000 people are diagnosed with a rare or less common cancer, and nearly half of them won't survive. They're often more aggressive. There are fewer treatment options because there are fewer clinical trials. And because they're so rare, they're unique, and it's often hard to find expertise. There are often no precedents set. There are fewer treatment pathways known about. So it's, it's a, I suppose, largely overlooked section of, of cancers. But if we look at the way that um, genomic technology is improving, then we're going to see more and more rare and less common cancers come to the fore over the coming decades because we're identifying unique mutations. So if we say, look at breast cancer, which is regarded as a more common cancer, we're going to have unique subtypes based on their mutations. And and those unique subtypes are going to become a rare cancer in and of themselves. So we're going to see this become more of an issue. And we 
at Rare Cancers Australia. It's a charity founded by Richard and, and Kate Vines. And they came together after Kate Vines. Well, Kate Vines actually was diagnosed with a rare thyroid cancer about 30 years ago. Um, and she was encouraged by her oncologist to set up this foundation, this, this charity, to support people who have no support from any other cancer groups. Um, and so they're doing a lot of heavy advocacy. Well, we're doing a lot of um, advocacy for people that come under this banner, as well as a lot of, I suppose, trying to improve the pathways and the support for people with rare and less common cancers, because so often, because the cancer community is... I suppose by, by virtue of a smaller population, we have less funding overall and we have fewer patients here in Australia. A lot of clinical trials are done throughout the world and, and people with rare and less common cancers often have to go elsewhere to get treatment or because of their unique mutation. So they might have breast cancer with the same mutation as a lung cancer or vice versa, but they're not eligible for that same treatment on the PBS, subsidised on the PBS because it's in a different location. And so we're trying to change that. And, you know, we had a big forum called Can Forum. We've got another one coming up in, in uh, this month, actually, in November. We had one last year um, where Greg Hunt came along, um, the Minister for Health, and um, talking about our futures framework and how we'd like to see everyone or more people have access to genomic testing from the outset from diagnosis so people don't have to go through chemo which might not be effective and it might be quite broad and and have a lot of unnecessary consequences because it's not actually targeting their mutation and then they can go straight to the clinical trial or to the treatment that is proven for that mutation so there's a lot that's happening and it's very exciting to be involved in rare cancers. Um, we do a lot of patient support as well. So people come to us and, and we try to uh, raise money for different patients through patient treatment funds. We're tax deductible. So when people donate, it's not taxed at all. And then that helps people either get support, general support for their medical treatment or fund a particular treatment that's not on the PBS it could be thousands you know every month or to get people overseas and that's um, personally that's what we uh, originally came to rare cancers for from our own you know in our own personal situation um, about three or four years ago. Hmm. Um, well thank you for just giving us a glimpse into the fact Emily that you have actually walked a pretty tough road uh, for many years uh, with your child. And so I, I might just say very quickly that you've actually experienced it both ends as the parent of a child with a rare cancer and now working within the organisation to help other people who have the same problem. So I, I just thought a good way forward, uh, Emily, would really be looking at your own journey as both a parent and also wearing a hat as a GP, working through the stages of your journey with your son, um, you know, from the early days, uh, the misdiagnoses or whatever it was that, that was difficult, the diagnosis itself, uh, how it was for you and for your family, and probably how was it for the GP? Because I'm sure the GP was probably also floundering quite a bit because it was rare uh, so giving us both uh, what we can what we did well enough and how we can improve in what we do 
So I think that because it's a fairly long-winded story, I might just hand it over to you to talk through it. Mm, sure. Thank you, David. Look, ours is a bit of a, an unusual story. Um, originally, my son, Ned, who, who was our second child, and um, he was born in 2012. So we're talking about 2014. Originally, he was actually diagnosed with leukaemia, which is regarded as a fairly common childhood cancer, acute lymphoblastic leukaemia. And the lead up to that, actually, it was in, in conjunction with me preparing for my um, GP fellowship exams. But he stopped walking. And, you know, children at two have behaviours that fluctuate. His appetite was down. In retrospect, I see all these things. He had a few strange rashes here and there. He suffered from a few viral urties. For about six weeks, he just kind of stopped walking. And we thought that it was a learned behaviour because he'd hurt his ankle coming off a slide. We went to, I, I took him to GP friends. Uh, we saw an orthopaedic surgeon. In the end, I took him to a paediatrician friend of mine and we did bloods and that revealed the diagnosis of leukaemia. So that was a six-week process and he was diagnosed two weeks before my um, FRACGP exams when I was pregnant actually with our third child. And it was a very difficult very difficult situation. And as a GP, I could not have foreseen that either. You know, not walking is a red flag for a cancer, but it's such a far-fetched red flag in certain, you know, it's it's one at the bottom of the list. It's not a pri top, top priority. Certainly that was something that I hadn't, that hadn't crossed my mind. And as a GP prior to cancer, you know, nothing can prepare you. And I know that that is a cliched thing to say, but as GPs, we have a fairly good understanding of how to walk alongside our patients and how to empathise and how to try and meet them where they're at and work out the context and, and really assist their well-being. But even so, and I would regard myself as a fairly empathetic person on the whole, even so I could not have um, imagined the depths of uh, of, of difficulty that we were plunged into from that moment. And, and it's from an, a number of, of angles. So it's the diagnosis of a life-threatening illness for your child and cancer in general. So cancer as portrayed by the media, you know, these children with bald heads, with sunken eyes, uh, who have nasogastric tubes, it looks horrific. And that feeling like you're entering that world is uh, a shock in and of itself. But then there are other issues that as GPs we really need to consider when we're talking to when we're talking to patients and it's really changed my approach because there's that initial shock and grief reaction. But then there's this long-term trying to work out how you're going to fit cancer into the family life because you have no choice uh, and how it's going how you're going to try and make things work career-wise with a young family to enable yourselves to financially support yourself. So that's a long-winded way of saying, you know, if you're thrust, if you're given a, a diagnosis of cancer, it's not just, you know, as a GP, it's, it's often another day at the office. And I say that as a generalisation because I know some GPs really feel, and some, some patients, you know, you really feel the diagnosis and take it home with you and you feel it profoundly. But... 
for the family sitting there, you know, for instance, I had to take three months of unpaid leave because our child, our two-year-old was needing so many hospital admissions for neutropenia. I had to be really careful about encountering people with infectious diseases at work because he was neutropenic at home. I had to change my clothes, kind of like what we're talking about during COVID times. I had to change my clothes. We had to put a sign up at the front door, you know, if you're unwell, you can't come um, in today, I'm sorry, because my son's neutropenic. Then my son, then my husband and I had to both just be part-time uh, so that we could tag team. You know, I'd work a day, then spend the night in hospital. He'd work the next day and then spend the next night in hospital. And we just were ships in the night. Uh, so that went on for a couple of years. And look, as a GP, there were a lot of things that I was able to do and understand that the average person wouldn't. So I was able to translate the jargon from the outset, whereas my husband, who is a teacher, was not, and he had a very steep, much steeper learning curve. So that's another facet of it. It's this shock into this kind of culture, I suppose, with a different language, and you're having to process it whilst on the run. So having to understand what the red flags were for thrombocytopenia, you know, if I saw some petechiae, I could recognise that and take him straight in, for instance. Being able to recognise the initial signs of perhaps having a low-grade fever and the minute he had a temperature of 37.8, we had to take him into hospital and potentially for a, a seven-night stay. Being so vigilant at the playground, you know, when we're to told to let our children experience a bit of risk, I had to be hyper-vigilant at the playground and watch because his platelets were so low on, on, on numerous occasions. Being able to recognise that pallor, that slight change in pallor, which put him in the, in the zone of needing a blood transfusion and things like that. And what we appreciated in our GPs was that if we went in to see, we, we kind of had two that we were going between, that they had read the correspondence and that they were aware of treatment changes, um, management plan changes, what the last hospital admission was for and what the discharge meds were and just having things up to date. So I didn't have to go in and repeat our story every time, especially if he'd had an allergic reaction to something that needed to be documented and I didn't need to. And there, and there were also a few strange chemo complications and chemo side effects that meant that we had to take a bit of a detour on the, on the planned treatment schedule. So the GP knowing that meant I didn't have to relive all of that again and again. The other thing that I suppose if I go on, so come, I think, so he was diagnosed in 2014, right? So tw mid-2017, I actually failed those fellowship exams by a minute amount, by 0.01%. And I then got back to work a year or so later and resat them at the start of 2017. And while I was pregnant with our fourth child and Ned was on maintenance chemotherapy and we're down in Tasmania. So all of that chemo could be done. Um, at the Royal Hobart Hospital because it's a tertiary hospital. But mid-2017, I took him. So even I'll just add in that even maintenance chemotherapy, there are regular steroids. And as a GP, you know, we say to people, oh, the three days course of steroids might make your child a bit more angry, a bit more hungry. But we don't know the depths of how bad long-term steroids is. Honestly, the tantrums and the screaming and the constant tension at home when Ned was on a week of steroids or a month of steroids took so much out of us and it took so much out of our family life. It was harrowing and, and it did require still a lot of hospital visits. So it was mid 2017 during one of those hospital visits that 
we were called into the room and told that he had relapsed and we had to fly immediately to the children's hospital in Melbourne for a bone marrow transplant. And thankfully I had this time passed my fellowship exams. So we embarked on nine to 10 months, all of a sudden thrust into a, a two bedroom apartment in Melbourne. His younger, his two-year-old sister, the one that I'd been pregnant with when he was diagnosed, uh, happened to be a bone marrow match and he had a bone marrow transplant. But in that, in that lead up, we, we didn't have a GP in Melbourne and the absence of a GP to be able to talk things through because the oncologists were fabulous and the oncology team, but they were all about cancer. So Ned had a rash one time and I, you know, as a GP, I knew that it was hand, foot and mouth, but I wasn't sure how the hand, foot and mouth would be affected by cancer. And the oncologists didn't realise it was hand, foot and mouth. Well, the oncologists that I was speaking to, because they just didn't have much experience in common childhood rashes. And just things like that. It was just such an absence. And, of course, um, the fact that we needed psychological care and support during this time. And to understand the context. So suddenly I flew up and, and the next morning I was, I was there at the hospital with Ned and we went to theatre straight away. And the anaesthetist was just kind of, oh, um, you know where the toilets are and um, we'll just go in shortly and uh, you can just go back home. And I was like, well, I don't have a home here yet. I don't have anywhere to go. I don't know where the toilets are. I don't know what your standard procedure is here because I literally just flew up from Tasmania. And, and so, you know, having a doctor, a GP who understands the context and can kind of sew things together would have been invaluable at that point. Um, it was, I, I, thank, I thank God every day that I was a doctor during all of that because I could understand that and I'd been in a hospital system but it just I suppose reinforced the need to understand the context the context of the family you're given a cancer diagnosis to the context of their their lack of support or their you know if they've got an abund abundance of support or the context of the, their financial situation or what they're doing for work or how the other children are faring um, and what supports they'll need so so important. The following message is a community service announcement. I'm Professor Andrew Sindoni, cardiologist at Concord Hospital in Riot Hospital in Sydney. I'm talking today about the fact that we may be missing aortic stenosis in primary care. New prevalence data actually shows that many severe symptomatic people with aortic stenosis in Australia go undiagnosed or untreated. The prevalence of symptomatic severe aortic stenosis in Australia is about 60,510 people, but only 7,073 of those where people with severe symptomatic aortic stenosis receive aortic valve replacement. Certain factors do increase the risk of developing aortic stenosis, and it's what we see every day. Advancing age, people over the age of 65, cardiovascular risk factors like hypertension, diabetes, cigarette smoking, and other conditions, chronic kidney disease, coronary artery disease. If we don't think about aortic stenosis, we're not going to find it. So if someone reports these sorts of things, grab your stethoscope. Have a listen to their chest. Maybe you haven't listened to their chest for a long time or ever because they've you know, not come to you very often or they come with other reasons. This is a condition in which we can intervene. We can make a difference with surgical aortic valve replacement and nowadays with modern therapies with transcutaneous aortic valve implantation. This has now been extended to older people who previously would have been felt to be not suitable for surgery. You say, oh, that person's old and you know, they're not going to survive an operation. This is not a general anaesthetic operation necessarily. It's a procedure which is done under sedation and local anaesthetic in the femoral artery, and this can make a huge difference to symptoms, 
and survival, keeping people out of hospital and really make a difference to their quality of life. If you think someone has aortic stenosis when you listen to their heart or if they have those symptoms of shortness of breath, fatigue, syncope, chest pain, if you listen to the heart and you hear a murmur, either refer them for an echocardiogram or send them to see their cardiologist. Listen, suspect, refer. And then, so he had the first bone marrow transplant and then sadly at the end of the 100 days, so it was, I suppose, April 2018, it was found that he had relapsed again. We needed to go immediately to Seattle for a CAR-T trial, which is now CAR-T is available in Australia, but it wasn't then. And that's where rare cancers came in because we needed to fundraise urgently within a few weeks to get over there um, and have the CAR-T trial because we hadn't been working. We'd been on Centrelink while we were in Melbourne with our now four children at the time. So we spent three months in Seattle. Sadly, Ned's leukemia mutated while we are there and it spread to his CNS. So they told us, this is a, he was the seventh on this particular CAR-T trial. So there'd been very little precedent and they said to us, well, it might not work and he's really sick and it has spread. So if it doesn't work, and you take you, and you you allow him to get the CAR T cells, and it doesn't work. Then he might have a cytokine, cytokine storm, and you might not get him back to Australia. Or you can give it to him, and it may there's a small chance it may clear his leukemia, and you can get back to Australia. And you'd have to go through another bone marrow transplant. Um, that was one of the most harrowing periods because we had to decide then and there what we were going to do in the next four days, whether we were going to potentially make him sicker here in Seattle without family around or, um, for the, you know, in order to perhaps get that improvement or just take him back to Australia for palliative care without any treatment. I'm a Christian, so we, we spent a lot of that time in prayer, but we had we had so much support from afar from Rare Cancers Australia during that time um, in terms of the psychosocial support, just checking in and making sure that things were progressing um, and giving us advice if we needed to not not medical advice but people to talk to if we needed and other things like that you know helping to navigate the, the pathways we were very fortunate that the CAR-T actually did clear his CNS disease and we got back to Australia just in time for him to do another clinical trial to get him into remission then to go into a second bone marrow transplant and that second bone marrow transplant given that he'd had another tra transplant and CAR-T within the year was a horrific ordeal and he was very sick but we kind of were more familiar we were, we were tireder we were much more weary with the whole thing but we were more familiar with the hospital this time um, and the processes and rare cancers actually had connections and they provided accommodation for us and so we didn't have to pay for that and that was a huge burden lifted but because at this point we realised Ned's cancer was a rare cancer, it was not by virtue of the fact that it was still leukaemia, but by virtue of the fact that it was not responding to any of the treatments, information was harder and harder to find. And we were constantly trying to find the exact specifics of his cancer. I was Googling a lot. His oncologist was Googling a lot. Or several of them were. And they, we just didn't know. And I think that's the thing we come across with patients who come to us at Rare Cancers is that they don't have other people to share the experience with because no one has the same cancer as them. You know, people with cancers form communities based on the location of their cancer because they've got this shared experience. Um, but with a rare one, there might be only a couple of you in Australia that have that same cancer. 
and there is no information and there are very few experts you know we were in Seattle and I was saying to the expert of the experts I was saying what do you recommend do you recommend we take the CAR T cells or not and she said I just don't know and she's the leading doctor um, on those trials so you know we had to make that decision and I think that's that's the problem with a lot of these cancers is there's just no set guidance you know you go you you have your life upended on you for a term with a life-threatening diagnosis and you want certainty it's so hard you, you already have this diagnosis that you don't know is going to whether it's going to take your life or your loved one's life so you want some certainty you want to know that there's a fairly six well a you'd prefer it to be a successful fully successful treatment pathway but you want the best treatment and if there is no known best treatment it leaves you floundering and if if there is a possible treatment that you have to pay thousands of dollars for and you have to mortgage, remortgage your home in order to obtain and your quality of life is thus diminished, you know, who helps you make those decisions and, and why, why is that the case? It, it is quite an unfair system if you look at it in that respect in terms of the financial burden for people who have cancers that are, that are so rare. In terms of the follow-on from after his second transplant, 18 months after leaving Tasmania to live, uh, sorry, going to Melbourne and then Seattle and then Melbourne. 18 months later, we came back finally after the second transplant at Christmas in 2018. And Ned finally got to spend some time at home. He started grade one at school and he'd missed all of prep and half of kinder. So he was thrilled about going to school with his older sister and and my husband. Um, But in February, I had to fly him back to the children's for a checkup and he was found to have relapsed a fourth time. And, and sadly there was, um, there was nothing that they could do. So um, at that appointment, I had, no, I had no one with me. It was just me and Ned, given the diagnosis of, of this relapse and um, that I'd be having to take him back to Tasmania, there were no further options. Um, and then coming back and, and trying to convey this to people but also trying to work out how the parameters had shifted. And that is such a a fundamental part of caring for people with cancer as a doctor is that we are taught to, uh, and I suppose many palliative care doctors would have come across this. Obviously, this is part of their work, but as GPs, you know, it's all about life-preserving measures and how we can make someone's life healthier or better quality of life Um, and things like you know all through our years of cancer we'd been told not to give for instance not to give Ned ibuprofen um, because of platelets and uh, potential the potential for bleeding and things like that Um, but coming back to palliative care I had to essentially direct it all I had to you know what, what do we do to keep him out of hospital well I can syringe in hydrolyte if he's really sick because even though he's febrile we don't really want him in hospital for a week to treat an infection unless it's it's uh, compromising his quality of life and it's making him really uncomfortable, in which case we do need to take him in. But how long do we take? Do we tr- treat him for the whole infection or do we just take him in to rehydrate and make him feel more comfortable? Do we give him ibuprofen to help with the pain or do we still stay away because the potential for bleeding and thus then hospital admission? And all of these had to be balanced and it was all on me. There are palliative care services, but they're only from in restricted timeframes and they're not accessible for pediatric uh, patients all the time. So 
it was all on me and I had to administer morphine at home um, and had to make the calls myself. I didn't know. I didn't know what was going to happen. I've never specialised in palliative care. I did not know how his body would start to deteriorate. I didn't know what the signs would be other than, you know, the, the instant signs before death. I didn't know what to look out for. We tried to take him away on, for a few nights with, with the other. We tried to go away as a family, but he got, he became um, very uncomfortable with a lot of pain during that time. I didn't know if this was the end and we needed to take him back because he needed to be at home and comfortable and would we be able to get back in a car? Would we need an ambulance? It was just so unknown and I had no one to guide me in that. And that was extraordinarily difficult. Thankfully, I had I had a GP I could call, a GP friend that I could call, and he um, and he had been Ned's GP all along, so he was wonderful. But I think you know that that's one of the most pivotal parts of being a GP is that continuity of care, being able to be part of the cancer support team, but also knowing when to refer to palliative care. It's not just about the very end; it's about foreseeing that this person needs improved quality of life because they're dealing with a life-threatening illness and and they might they you know they need to have um, improved pain control so that the family can form a relationship with the pal care team and work out understand and build awareness of all that before things get stressful at the end and providing emotional support uh, and and just being there to be able to to um, to learn alongside the, the family you know I certainly, as a GP, would not understand all the cancers. Even working for rare cancers, I don't understand all the cancers. I don't understand all the treatment pathways. But it's about knowing where to go. I mean, as GPs, we are good at researching things because we have all the resources at our fingertips. We might not know all the details of everything, but we know where to go to find them. And I think that's key. You know, rare cancers are rare, so it's hard to find information. But as long as we know where to find the best information and who, which experts to speak to, and which clinical trials, because, you know, rare people with rare cancers really rely on clinical trials because there's not much else available. So, yeah, that, that's, that's, I suppose, how I came. I mean, that's a really long-winded story, David, about how we, had, we, we were touched by cancer, by rare cancer, and how I then got involved in rare cancers. Ned sadly died at the end of March in 2019, five weeks after that last relapse. He, I'd managed to bring him home. And so he was in our bed when he died and he was six. It was a month before his seventh birthday. And he left behind uh, an older sister, Lucy, a four-year-old sister, Eleanor, and a two-year-old brother, Gilbert. Yeah, it was, a, it was a terrible, terrible time. We're thankful that we are Christians and um, we believe in life after death, but that hasn't minimised the distress of losing a family member. Um, especially after so much trauma that we've, you know, that we hadn't been able to take stock of and process during that time because it all happened so quickly. We have had good support in the community and we've been able to seek, you know, the GPs that we were involved with have known our story and they were in the, the unique, wonderful position to be able to know without us having to go into detail every time we came in to know that you know, this child now needs psychological support. This one needs to be referred to a paediatrician because of this ongoing issue. You know, our, our daughters, particularly our older daughters, have really suffered and they're aware of, of our family and the context of our family. Um, so, and we trust them because they have been there. Yeah, 
Well, thank you for sharing that story with us, um, Emily. I just wonder, were there critical moments when conversations with the GP would revolve around things like, what do you need? How can we help? And how, how does it feel to be on the receiving end of these sorts of questions? That's number one. I guess I'm after what were really helpful questions and statements the GP might have made along the way? And what are things that might have been probably done a little bit better if, if there was another chance to go through it? Yeah, that's a good question. Look, and I'll speak from personal experience, but also from what I've observed, observed in our work. I think the things that our GPs did really well was, and, and the questions that they asked that were good were, well, I suppose not so much questions, but acknowledgement of the awful situation we were in time and time again. Acknowledgement of the distress we were enduring and the ramifications for our other family members, uh, for our children. Encouragement that this wouldn't be their unravelling, um, that our children would use this to, to develop empathy and resilience. And they were amenable. You know, I didn't have to feel like I needed to prove our need for a mental health care plan when it got to that point for certain family members. And I think above all, what has been underlined in my experience all along is the need for empathy. And, you know, we know that empathy, I mean, many GPs are very good at empathy, but it's the ability to sense, it's defined as the ability to sense other people's emotions. And that's coupled with the ability to imagine what someone else might be thinking or feeling. So that's really just essentially walking in someone else's shoes, trying to understand not just this is just a this is a bad diagnosis, pluck that out. No, no, no. We have to understand that diagnosis in the context of this family with financial distress or this family with no support networks. And let's think about that. So a parent needs to be with a two year old child in hospital 24 seven. They can't be left. So who's going to pick up their child, their other child at school? Who's going to actually be earning money? Who's going to be looking after the child at home during that time? So it, it's, it's kind of understanding and empathising with the patient. Um, and patients, you know, we know when a GP is really trying to, to understand and work out what the needs are. The other thing is that what do you need is actually, this is possibly arguable but I don't think what do you need is a great question because when we're in that trauma like when we're in amidst that trauma we can't rationalize and think and logistically plan about what we need we're just floundering we're floundering you know I had a million lists in my head every day and I couldn't sleep at night but then I'd rock up and I wouldn't know what to ask for first. I wanted to tell them, well, can you, can you ask the oncology clinic not to make my son wait four hours to get treatment? Can you make it so that we don't always have to go through ED and be exposed to all the infectious diseases every time we go into hospital? Can you make it so that this just go all, all goes away? Can I access more information? Who do I talk to about, you know, getting to Seattle? I had to predominantly organize a lot of that myself and talk to the to to the people over there the doctors over there to to lift the load in areas that can be lifted you know to be able to have had a GP we were in Melbourne at the time so we didn't have a GP there but to kind of help navigate that and of course asking GPs to be able to sense and know what's going through people's head is a bit far-fetched 
um, and just intuitively picking up on what needs to, to be done. But I think, I think when there's a trust relationship and there's a long-term relationship already built, a lot of GPs can have a good idea of where people um, might be at or might be headed and what they need. So that's a very roundabout way of asking your question, answering your question about what to ask. But mm. I really think that, you know, GPs building a trust relationship and empathising with their patients, their patient is the most important thing. But also I think just having regular check-ins. So just saying, you know, why don't we just put this time aside Wednesday afternoon, every fortnight or every week, and you come in and see me and just download or tell me about what's going on, update mm. me, and I will try to help you make decisions because the decisions are the big part of it. In terms of um, what I would have preferred to happen is just better continuity of care. The number of times, you know, Ned had a little weird anatomical anomaly in his heart and the number of times I had to explain to every single doctor, no, 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 he doesn't have a new clot in his heart. No, 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 that's not, you know, the port that's, it, it's, it's there, it's been investigated fully, it's normal. And the number of times I had to say, no, he had this weird reaction to this platelet infusion once and so we have to pre-medicate him with this, this and this and this. And no, we can't, you know, I, you have to call me up to theatre straight away because he has this, he gets terrors when he comes out of a general anaesthetic and just things like that. I think just, I mean, those little things like, you know, behaviours or, 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 or um, the way things need to happen in hospital. Obviously, the parents can convey to a degree, but I think the medication and the continuity of care and the treatment changes. No, we're not on blinitumumab anymore. We're on chemotherapy. And yes, now we're on this clinical trial. And no, that transplant was from his sibling, but the next one's from a matched unrelated donor and, and things like that. And then the other thing is that I really think, and this is not just GPs, but I think if you understand where the patient's at, you will understand that time and waiting for results is one of the most torturous things to do. Um, you're waiting for a result to tell you whether your child is in remission or you're in remission if you're the one with cancer or the treatment has failed, cancer's likely to progress and you're going to die. There, and, you know, that's probably a dramatic statement, but that, that, that happened to us, you know, in Seattle. We were waiting to see, well, did the CAR-T actually work or is he going to die here in Seattle in the next few weeks? So, you know, that lead up to tests and, and if it's a scan, there's this term that we use in the CATS community called scansiety and then waiting for that test. You know, it might be something that you leave to the end of your day to call your patients. But honestly, if you, if you know the result, you honestly, the, the sooner you can put your patient out of the waiting misery, the better, because it, uh, so much hinges on it. So much hinges, you know, like. For instance, they could never tell how long we're going to be in Melbourne because we need to tell our jobs when we're coming back. Oh, we don't know. It depends on the next test result. And the next test result comes back. And, okay, you need to be here for another month or two. So we could tell our jobs. But to have to wait till the end of the week to tell, you know, the implications of every test were, were enormous. And I think that that's, you know, if, if a GP, well, when, when GPs have empathy, they can really imagine that the waiting is a, is a really hard time. Mm. Emily, I just want to ask now with regard to Rare Cancers Australia, how can people like yourself working in there and the resources that this organisation have, how can they help our patients and ourselves as GPs? How do we access a care? What care should we think we can access? What is 
uh, if you like, what is within the scope of the organization and what is not? Yeah, that's a really good question. So like I said before, we don't, GPs can't stay up to date with everything. There's just so much going on in every disease area. So at Rare Cancers, we have trained um, cancer navigators. We have people who are, have connections with pharmaceutical companies. We have people who have the ears of health ministers. So we are able, and we, we, we are on friendship terms with, well, I suppose not me directly, but, but our, CEO, our CEOs and the head of patient care, they, they know a lot of oncologists nationally and internationally. So we can help find clinical trials. If you have a patient with a rare cancer or a less common cancer, and, and that includes all pediatric cancers, then call us if you, if you don't, if the oncologist is not giving enough information, well, A, patients and GPs need to know that it's okay to ask for a second opinion and oncologists don't mind that. Also, you come to rare cancers and we can direct you to the oncologist that is expert in that area as far as we know. We can also direct clinical trials that are happening in the area. We can tell you whether that treatment that you've been advised is the standard treatment of care. We're not going to advise you medically, but we can go with the information that we have and we have a lot of resources at our fingertips that we can access. We can advise how to apply for compassionate access to certain drugs and to a certain certain procedures and we can support your patients so we provide support groups but at the moment they're tele support groups on zoom and uh, we have a few that are going on in very particularly rare cancers and it just enables patients to share what trials are going on in the absence of other solid good information that's out there um, and what their experience has been and it can connect you into to international um, communities as well we can also enable or help equip GPs to support patients after treatment. And after treatment, you know, it doesn't all stop there. You, you don't just have remission and then suddenly that's it. The adjustment for people, particularly children who have their whole lives ahead of them, may have had hormonal disruption, fertility issues, long-term cognitive delays, uh, developmental delays, all sorts of things. That's going to be an issue, potentially issues for life. A lot of chemotherapy causes heart problems, um, hearing problems and various other things. So parents and children are going to need to be supported through that. And children who've had childhood cancer need to be aware of that when they're trying to have children down the track. And these are the types of things that we can, we can connect you into oncologists that have had uh, experience in survivorship. Um, and we can provide information resources to enable you to support your patients through that. In terms of patients, we can also provide access to financial support, like I said before, in terms of getting their patient treatment funds up and running and getting access to media outlets to get more traffic to their web, to their fundraisers and enable them to raise the money they need to either get overseas or get that treatment funded. And we, then we just do a lot of resources, health, health awareness, health resources, a lot of webinars that we do, try and get, trying to get a lot of different stakeholders in the room and patients, patient groups to try and discuss what needs to be done. Also in terms of getting meds, medications onto the PBS um, and we enable or we actually help patients to write write their stories and to try and advocate for their 
medications that they need to be included on the PBS. And so I suppose in that way, we're just, we're that support network for rare cancers in the absence, you know, kind of like Breast Cancer Australia for breast cancer, in the absence of being able to have a support group for each rare cancer, we're there for all of them. And we're working with international groups as well to better enable them to provide the same service for their communities. That, that's um, incredibly helpful to know and what a great resource. Yes, so, yeah, absolutely. So, so, yeah, if you have patients that are needing support, call Rare Cancers Australia and they can speak to a patient care, patient navigator. But also if you need support, we're happy to provide GP support as well. We're hoping to produce more GP education over the coming year or two. Emily, do you have some final messages for our GP listeners? Yeah, look, just two things. If you, if you don't know and your patient doesn't know and it's a rare cancer, call us at Rare Cancers because we will do everything in our power to find out more for you because community is one of the most crucial aspects of support for a patient who's going through a traumatic diagnosis and experience. And the second thing is empathy. And I cannot emphasise the importance of empathy enough um, because cancer is a cancer diagnosis is where one life ends and your new life starts, so to speak, because you have to you have to change your perspective on life, you have to change your lifestyle, and there are so many things that are impacted. So empathy need is needed in in droves for people who are suffering from a cancer, particularly a cancer that's not well known about, and there's no information um, out there. Thank you so much for that, Emily. Thank you so much, David, for having me on the show. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.